Hello, bookcase people. My name is Kate Gibson, and I am going to be one of your hosts for the remainder of this podcast. And <laughs> and I'm her father, Charlie Gibson, as she refers to me now, not as her father anymore, but as her co-host and employee, I should say. But I do also welcome all of you discerning, astute, insightful, perceptive, sagacious readers who join us, I hope, every week. And we have a good book for you this week. Go as a River is the name of it. I must say I have a soft spot in my heart for people who, after another career, just decide, maybe late in life, that they can write a novel that will be a bestseller. Shelley Reed has done that with a book called Go as a River. And Kate and I both loved it. Yeah, we really did. And I like to say that I'm only 47 and I'm on career number three. I think I'm on career number three. (laughs) So anybody who's got the courage to do this, I laud them as well. It's a real literary piece of fiction. It's got lots of different story aspects. But a big part of what I think it's about is the main character's intrinsic love of her family's land and their peach farm. And it's got sort of a Walt Whitman, almost a Buddhist philosophy of a oneness with the land that she writes, I think, just beautifully. And that really is what caused me to fall in love with her writing and fall in love with her. Well, it's not just a Sylvan novel, though, I would say. Yes. It certainly is that. And her love of Colorado, of the Gunnison River, of the mountains of Colorado, all of that is very manifest in the book. But it's also a wonderful story about her principal character, Victoria, who goes through some extraordinary events in her life. And I think you have great, great sympathy with this character. I really came to love it. And she loved Victoria. Shelley Reed taught for 27 years. She always wanted to be a writer, but she taught in college for years and years. And teaching just was a Uh, distracted her from her writing career. And she retired a few years ago from teaching in order to, as she says, tell this story that had to be told. I I know there was an inner drive in her that made her put Victoria's story to page. And she talks about Victoria as if this is a real person. She's real in Shelley's mind. Shelley is, uh, I think she said, 57 years old or approaching 60. And it was brought to our attention by Mitchell Kaplan, who owns Books and Books and Books and Books and Books and Books. Actually, Books and Books is the name of his- So many books, like just books forever. It's the name of his store in Coral Gables and in the Miami area. There's a number of Books and Books stores that Mitchell Kaplan owns. And he said, I'm putting this book into the hands of every reader that I can touch. And so his recommendation, his seal of approval carries a lot of weight with us. And so we went and got the book. And interestingly enough, This book got to be very popular in Europe before it got really popular in the United States. It was on the best-selling list of the Times of London. And and now she says it's been translated into 30 languages. And yet it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, I don't think, that I've seen in this country. So we were so pleased that Mitchell Kaplan told us about it and that we got a chance to read it. I love, I love experiences like this. In fact, I think it speaks to why we talk to independent bookstores is that our enthusiasm is catching and so is the enthusiasm of bookstore owners. So when he said, this is the book I'm giving to everybody, it was, I think, the next book we picked up. And he was right because bookstore owners and book buyers have terrific instincts. And we loved this book and we think you will too. And we loved our conversation. And so here is our conversation with Shelley Reed, author of Go 
as a river. Shelly Reed, it is so great to have you in the bookcase. We don't always start by talking about the plot of a book, but when Mitchell Kaplan recommended the book, it took him a little while to enumerate the plot for us. So what I'm wondering is, could you elevator pitch for our audience sort of what the story is for Go is a River? It seems to me like it's a conglomeration of many elements. There's this love affair. There is a female character who's sort of caretaking a difficult family. There's the flooding of a family estate. So I'm sort of wondering, what was the first kernel that came to you of all of these layers that make up the story? Yeah, sure, sure. And I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you. Definitely the first kernel was the character of Victoria Nash herself. She really, for whatever, you know, mysterious reason of characters come to a writer's mind, once she started forming in my mind and I started to get to know her and her vulnerabilities and her hidden strength that even she certainly did not know about herself, I really started falling in love with this young woman for those reasons, that vulnerability, that strength and resilience that she didn't even know that she had. And it all began with Victoria. You talk about her like she's a real person. Once she started to do this, once she began to do this. And then I read an article in which you said, my only goal was to tell this story. I love this character so much. Yeah. It's interesting that an author falls in love with a character who is, after all, a product of her own imagination. And she upends her life, as we'll get into in a minute, upends her life to get that character's story out of her mind and onto a page. Talk to me about the process that made you do that. Well, gosh, it is so interesting how the character of my imagination, all of the characters in this book, I really, I lived with them for so long and I thought about them so much that they absolutely have become real to me, like on the level of family. I carry them in my heart. I admire each one of them for different reasons. So for me, the writing journey has been very long. <laughs> um, I set out to be a writer as a kid. I absolutely knew that's where I was going with my life. And I wrote a lot throughout my childhood. I studied creative writing and literary studies and journalism at university and also as a master's student. But then I was awarded a teaching fellowship and I absolutely fell in with teaching. teaching was a wonderful way to work with young people and affect positive change in the world in that way. And so I ended up being a teacher. I wrote a little bit less and less. I was also a mom. And so once the character of Victoria started forming in my mind, she's really the one who called me back to my writerly past and got me to sit down and start writing again. So I'm so grateful for that. And then over time, as you say, Charlie, I just really felt so compelled to tell this story and to tell it as well as I possibly could. And so I chipped away at it little by little by little for about 12 years at early retirement from teaching in order to focus on getting this book out into the world. And it was actually kind of a scary leap, but I'm so grateful that I did it. <laughs> well, I, I know you taught at Western Colorado University for many, many years, 27 years. Is that right? Yeah, and, 27 years. And then left in 2018 to write the book. Did you know it's impolite to say this about a lady, but I, I know you're approaching the age of 60. Did you know, damn it, I have this novel in me. I've got to try and write it and I will upend my life to make that happen. That's, it's A, it's gutsy. And B, I have a soft spot in my heart for people who later in their life decide I can write a novel and I can hope and maybe even succeed in writing a bestseller. So what was that process? Take me through the process in your own mind when you said, I have this novel in me, I've got to try and write it, and I am going to upend my life. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for calling it gutsy because honestly, <laughs> it, it was a little gutsy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've uh, the character of Victoria Nash is pretty gutsy and I, I come from some pretty gutsy women. I feel that... Um, everything in life has its season. I've always felt this way, that I'm very tuned into the seasons in the natural world. And I think our lives also, different moments in our lives have their season. For a long time, it was my season to be a mom and to be a teacher. But then I just intuitively knew that it was time to shift and that, that it was time. And I felt it so clearly that it wasn't actually that difficult of a decision to make. Also, I was well into the writing of this book. And I knew that I was absolutely had to clear the space to finish it. So it was really a matter of respect for both me and the story to do so. And yeah, you know, I often start my author events by saying, I'm 57 years old and this is my debut novel. And I'm actually very proud of that. And I hope it inspires other writers to know that it's never too late. And our stories actually only get richer and deeper as we become richer and deeper with time and experience. So I'm, I think the journey has been just perfect, honestly. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because Victoria Nash sounds like almost like a friend, like she haunts you a little bit almost. So I guess my question for you is, when did she first tap you on the shoulder? And when you were finished with the book, did you have trouble letting her go? Does she still haunt you? Well, interestingly, I do remember the moment that this book began. I was out camping by myself. I live high in the Rocky Mountains. I live in the Gunnison Valley. I've lived in the Gunnison Valley for over three decades, the valley where the majority of the novel is set. I know it so well. I love it so much. I love to be in it, immersed in that wilderness. It's a really essential part of my life. So I was out camping one evening and the scene that those of you who have read it will know of when the mother deer comes into the meadow and then one small fawn follows her. And then a second, weaker, um, more fragile fawn comes out as well. What was special about it is that I really connected with that dear mother to mother, like a deep sense of how is she going to keep both of those babies alive? And I knew that feeling in my own deep being from being a mother myself. And then I grabbed my journal and I wrote it all down. <laughs> the next morning I was out hiking, I was climbing a mountain and I started thinking about that scene. And this is the moment Victoria Nash was born. I know that in retrospect, I didn't know it at the time, but I started thinking about that scene through the lens of someone else, someone that was not me, someone who was rather vulnerable around this idea of being a woman in the world. You know, those characters that you love the most in the books that you really hold deeply in your heart, they feel like friends. Now I have that within the characters that I've created for this novel. They do feel like friends. And I do think that that's what compelled me to finish the book. Did you have trouble, as Kate asked, putting her down and letting her go? Well, interestingly, I haven't yet, honestly, because <laughs> my book was uh, just released February 28th here in the United States. And it gained a spectacular and rather astonishing momentum around the world. So I've basically been on book tour since March 1st. I actually haven't left these characters behind yet. And I'm glad for that because, sure, I think when I do transition, they will always be with me. I have been so immersed in them for so long to move on. It will feel a little unusual at first, but I'm ready. I have more stories inside of me. <laughs> Tell me about Victoria. What made her someone that you could love so much? Well, when the novel opens, her world is very small. She's an earnest person. She always tries to do what's right. But she's not always sure exactly what that is or who gets to define that for her. And I actually remember feeling that myself as a young woman where I, you know, I think women 
often have to maybe work a little bit harder, fight a little bit harder to be able to define ourselves, to be able to know who we are outside of the context of who we're being told to be. And so certainly Victoria begins the novel with very little sense of herself and very little sense of the world. And what I love about her is as she moves forward in a rather two steps forward, one step back sort of way, because I believe that's how we actually grow, is that we face a challenge, we gather ourselves up, we try to face it, and life proceeds in that way. And each time you hope that you can be a little bit stronger, a little bit wiser, but not always is what I have found. And so what I love about Victoria is she never gives up. She continues to grow and become herself through these circumstances. She steps up every single day and does what needs to be done. And I just have a deep respect for that type of earnestness in the world. I want to talk to you a little bit about the title. But in order to do that, I want to have you read page 91. So let's start with the passage where the title is first mentioned, if you wouldn't mind reading that. And I have a couple of questions about the title. So the the scenario is Victoria Nash meets a young drifter named Wilson Moon. It's not a safe situation for Wilson and as a young indigenous man who's also a drifter in the moment and the place he's at. Victoria, against all of her desire, tells him he should leave this place. And then this is how the passage goes. He shook his head. There are more folks like Seth than stars in the night sky, he finally answered, meaning to be dismissive and comforting, but having the opposite effect. For what he said was surely true. Where was Will to go where there wasn't a hate-filled boy like Seth, ready to blame his troubles on a brown-skinned boy like Will? I knew he wouldn't run. I'll go as a river, said Will. My grandfather always told me that it's the only way. I nodded as if I understood what he meant, and we made plans to meet the following day. Did you write out that line of wills and say, oh, yeah, that's the title? I mean, where in the process did that become a part of the thematics of the book for you? But the thematic starts around the river and the idea that Gunnison River is such an important part of the book that it actually becomes essentially a character in the book itself. The idea that a river moves forward, it finds a way to continue to move forward against obstacle up and over, around. It carves new banks when necessary. Uh, it gathers along the way. Wild rivers have meant a lot in my life, and I've studied them quite a bit and they're fascinating to me. And I find a lot of strength in the way a wild river can always find a way to move forward. And so that becomes a powerful metaphor in the book for Victoria's journey. And so no, I didn't have the title initially. The spirit of the title was there. You cite in your acknowledgments to writers who are both Buddhists, I believe. Are you a Buddhist in your faith? And how has it affected the novel? Because a lot of it's about God. Yeah, you know, interestingly, on some level, I think you're right. In my acknowledgments, I acknowledge Thich Nhat Hanh and another Buddhist monk who I've studied with named Anam Thupten. And I don't know, categories sort of frighten me, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it. But for no, me makes personally, sense. in my own journey, what I, what I try to do is just gather wisdom from all the various wisdom traditions. I believe very much in living a very intentional life. I've tried to pull from the various wisdom traditions that just help me live my best life. Because in that tradition, I believe there's a, a gentleness and a kindness of how to walk in the world. And I believe in that. So I think I'm a culmination of all of those things. <laughs> so let me ask you this. We also talked about the flyleaf quote. At a certain point, you say to the woods, to the sea, to the mountains, to the world, now I am ready. Is that a flyleaf quote for the story? Or is that a flyleaf quote for the author? 
Oh, well, that's a lovely question. Yeah. So the novel begins with that opening quote from the wonderful writer, Annie Dillard, who was another person who attended to the natural world very carefully. She was an early influence uh, on me. And the idea that now I am ready, certainly for my own personal journey, I don't know that we ever are fully ready. I've loved every single step of my life, but now I am ready to be more fully myself as a 57-year-old woman? Absolutely. Do I admire older women and older people in general who can stand up and say, I am going to be exactly who I desire to be in the world, and there is no force and no expectation that can tell me otherwise? I adore people like that. And so, yeah, I believe that this idea of pulling from what we experience in the world to gather our own strength and perspective is a really powerful journey, my own journey, as well as the primary journey of, of the novel. Shelley Reed, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Go as a river. May you continue to go as a river, overcoming whatever obstacles you may have. And best of luck in your future writing career. It's been wonderful to have you in the bookcase. Thank you. That's a terrific debut. Well done. Thank you so much. And may you both go as a river as well. Victoria teaches us, Will teaches us. It's the only way. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Shelley Reed. I, I, I'm curious, Victoria in this book is the manager of a peach orchard and peaches and the trees are a big part of the book. How many peaches and, and jars of peach jam and peach recipes have people sent you since the book was published? 
Um, well, a lot, a lot. And I've actually really <laughs> loved that part that people have connected to the peaches in the novel. And um, I have a feeling I'm about to get a lot more because summer has finally just come to Colorado and the peach season here is actually quite short. So I think later in the season, I should prepare myself to be uh, receiving a lot of wonderful peaches. <laughs> but I, um, a lot of readers have told me that when they finish the novel, they have to run out and eat a peach, which I really love. <laughs> what was it about teaching that made you put writing aside for a while? What was so compelling and important to you to teach, to sublimate that desire to be a published writer yourself? Oh, my goodness. My students themselves. Oh, I I have loved, loved, loved my students. I've had thousands of them. I've gotten to know their names and their needs and their unique brilliance. And I really tried to just show up for them whole heart and soul every day. And I found so much joy in that. A lot of students who didn't realize how brilliant and how capable they were Pulling that out of them and cheering them on and setting them on a path was just such an incredible joy. I absolutely loved it, especially those students who struggle the most. They always were my favorites. <laughs> Author or authors that you will read simply because they wrote it. Oh, anything by Marilyn Robinson. I adore her. Uh, anything by Terry Tempest Williams, who also writes very closely, attends very closely to the natural world. Oh, I literally have such a long list. You may not want to ask me that question. <laughs> Most influential book in your life? I don't know. Oh, I should have been more prepared for that question. Um, <laughs> that's just such Painful question. That's like asking you, like, what's your favorite tree? You know, you can't, you can't say. Um, I, I think um, I turn over and over and over. I turn to the poetry of Rilke. And Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet is a book that I've probably read over and over more than any other book. But like I said, I have I have so many books that are like family to me and reside in my heart so deeply that it's a tough competition. But what probably immediately comes to mind is Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. I love that you're just such a naturalist that the first thing you can do is picking your favorite tree. We stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but we find it very illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Meaningful, centered, peaceful, wild, and <laughs> writerly. How's that? Good. <laughs> I, have, I have to add on writerly because I really have been waiting for a very long time in my life to get to this moment where I can focus on being a writer and I'm just going to love it and eat it up every day. Our conversation with Shelley Reed. To me, I loved finding Shelley Reed. It's one of my favorite ways that we can discover a book. As we talk to an independent bookstore owner and the bookstore owner says, have you read X? And we say, no, we haven't. And we go out and we read it and we write each other about how much we love it. And we reach out and we contact the author. That is what booksellers do. That is why they are exciting. They help us discover things. They help you discover things. They helped us discover Shelley Reed. We hope that you will discover Shelley Reed. And we're back with bookstores this week, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I wouldn't let that drop. I think it's really important mm. that you go into an independent bookstore with an open mind mm. and let that bookseller tell you what he or she is excited about. That's more than a staff pick. That's a really knowledgeable person who has 
gotten into the business just so that they can tell you what it is they're excited about. So we thank Mitchell Kaplan from Books and Books for telling us about Shelley Reed. And as I say, I have a soft spot in my heart for people who late in life decide that they will write a bestseller. Our bookstore this week is in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland Heights, actually. Apple Tree Books. Lynn Quintrell owns the store, has for almost 10 years, and we had a chance to talk with her. Lynn Quintrell from Apple Tree Books. It's good to have you with us. Tell me a little bit about Apple Tree Books. You're small but mighty, it looks like. Well, we try. Team, we try. <laughs> sort of the brief background is it was founded in 1975. I am the third owner of the bookstore. Being founded in 1975 makes us the oldest bookstore in the Cleveland area, which is interesting. It's been in the same location for its entire life. <laughs> and when I bought, I had worked for the previous owner, who was the second owner. I worked for her for about eight years, and then I bought it nine years ago and made the risky but rewarding decision to expand the store into the space next door. This building is a historic building, so construction was a bit of a challenge. But anyway, we needed space for kids' stuff and for events, and so I bit the bullet, and we expanded in uh, 2014, actually. No, 2016. I bought it in 14. I'm interested, Lynn. I mean, if you're the third owner, so it's been passed from an owner to an owner to an owner. That seems to be somewhat of a unique process that it's not, especially if it's not within an intergenerational family. How has that worked? How has that handoff worked twice? Well, I don't know how the first one worked. The first one worked that the founder of the bookstore decided he wanted... Honestly, he wanted a regular paycheck and he had the opportunity. <laughs> novel concept, you know, novel concept. He decided yeah. you could buy things with money and uh, Yeah, no. he thought he thought it might help with his family family needs. You know? So anyway, he, he he sold he sold the bookstore to a retired uh psychology department head at Case Western. She was retiring from Case and looking around like, what am I gonna do with myself? I'm too bright to sit home. So she bought the bookstore with a partner and lo and behold, partner dies three years into the arrangement and there she is. <laughs> so she decided to carry on by herself. And she has a son who was a very small partner, but he didn't want it. He just didn't want it. And so I worked for her and this is sort of a funny story. One day she, I mean, here's this 93 year old, right? On, <laughs> on, on email, she's doing email. And all of a sudden, the hand, Kate, like we were talking earlier, the hands go up. She goes, that's it. I'm done. It's yours. You want to buy it? It's yours. She points to me. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. So, so the previous owner kept it going for 25 years, which is, I think, phenomenal. I've only had yeah. nine. I only have nine under my belt and I'm, I'll be impressed if I make it to 15. But anyway, so Jane just decided that she was going to, sell it to me. And I thought, well, she kept it going here in the neighborhood because it was a fixture. It was a neighborhood fixture. And I thought long and hard about it. And with the same decision that she came to, I thought if it wasn't here, wouldn't the neighborhood be the worse off for its absence? Mm -hmm. So I took the plunge just like the other (laughs) owners did. So the best thing about the plunge and the worst thing about the plunge. The best thing about the plunge is it's been a really, really interesting journey. I've met a lot of really interesting people and our customers are phenomenal. They have supported us through thick and thin as through COVID. I mean, we did fine during COVID. Whoa. 
thanks to them, no, we, we had no drop off in business, which is amazing. Whoa. Yeah. The worst thing about it. Okay. I hate the hiring and firing. I hate that part. <laughs> the managing people is probably my biggest Achilles heel. Buying the books, I think, is a lot of fun. That's a plus. But managing the staff sometimes is challenging. I'm interested in what you're excited about that's coming out this summer. Like, what have you read where you've been like, yeah, I can't wait to get this in customers' hands? That's a hard question because right now I'm looking at the fall list for Christmas. So mm-hmm. I have a little... I have a little bit of title overload going on up here, <laughs> but I can tell you the two books that I loved this year that are out now that I think are just, depends what you like, of course. Um, it's fiction. One is Homecoming by Kate Morton. It is an awesome story about a family in Australia. I thought it was great. And the one I just finished, The Secret Book of Flora Leah, is a great book. It goes to the relationship between sisters and the power of stories to heal and get you through difficult times. Absolutely phenomenal book. Was there a book for you that made you want to be a bookseller? No. No? Mm -mm. I can answer that question fairly quickly. I fell into bookselling. I'll be honest. It was never my career goal. Mm -hmm. I'm a language major by background and I have a master's in history of art. So this is really not related to that at all. I just <laughs> to come in here one day and got a part-time job working for the owner and I loved it. You know, I like the people and I like the product. I asked you about the best part of taking the plunge and the worst part, but so many people have told us that the great satisfaction they take is when somebody comes back in and says, you suggested this and I loved it. Does that make owning a bookshop worth it? Because you're not going to get rich. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and I was hoping, and, and I was hoping to open a Swiss bank account with the first. To be honest with you, yeah, that's really great. We love that, particularly when a kid comes in and says, a, a little kid comes in and says, "I love this book. This was great." Or mom goes, "Thank you for sh- sh- you know steering us toward that one." Yeah, it's very rewarding. It is. Uh, And it definitely makes it worthwhile. Lynn Quintrell, thank you so very much for being in the bookcase. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you to both Charlie and to you, Kate. Thank you for inviting us. A reminder about the folks that make the podcast possible and then some closing thoughts from Shelley Reed. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. Produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. I would say I tried, as Will taught me, to go as a river. But it had taken me a while to understand what that meant. Flowing forward against obstacle was not my whole story. For, like the river, I had also gathered along the way all the many pieces connecting me to everything else. And doing this had delivered me here, with two fists of forest hill in my palms and a heart still learning to be unafraid of itself. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. 
But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.